you haven't already, uh, would you please go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Well, I'm not sure how many of you here this morning would share these sentiments, but um, I've always enjoyed reading biographies for one reason or another. In fact, the very first book that I ever remember buying as a kid was actually a biography. Now, I know that might seem a little bit weird for a kid in second grade, but I was a weird kid, so hey, that kind of makes sense. And I'm not sure if they have these things uh, around anymore, but the school that I went to always had a traveling book fair um, that would set up in our gymnasium, and it was really a highlight for a lot of us students once or twice a year to go into this bookstore and to be able to buy a new book. And so when I walked into the bookstore uh, or the book fair at Zion Lutheran School in second grade, I skipped right past the fiction section, walked past all of the books with the the animals and the airplanes and all of the different pictures on them, and I walked straight to the sports section. And I bought a biography of two basketball players, Isaiah Thomas and Charles Barkley. I think the book is still floating around my parents' house uh, today, if I'm not mistaken. But one of the reasons that I've always loved biographies is that they give us insight, insight into the real lives of real people. They give us insight into the different events that maybe shape them into the person that they are today. And we all have those events in our lives now, don't we? Those dots on the timelines of our lives that really shape us into the person that we are as we're sitting here this morning. And one of the reasons that I love the Gospels is that the Gospels are essentially biographies. They're biographies that highlight the significant events in the life of Jesus and throughout his ministry. But Jesus' biography is obviously very unique. It's one of a kind. You see, most biographies talk a lot about how someone is shaped by the different events in their lives. But Jesus' biography is very much different than that. Because Jesus wasn't so much shaped by the different circumstances or events in his life, but Jesus actually shaped the lives of everybody that he came into contact with and even shaped the the events of of world history. But you know, it's not just the the, the scope of influence that makes Jesus' biography, biography so unique. It's also its power. You see, at best, the stories of other influential people, the best that they can do is maybe inspire us. But the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus actually has the power to save us and to change our lives and our eternal destinies. And so the story that we're going to look at today in Luke's gospel is the story of how this one man has this life-changing encounter with Jesus. But it's also much more than that because it's also the story of a Savior who still saves and has the power to rewrite our stories or our biographies. And really, that's my prayer this morning, is not so much that you'll remember the the three points of this sermon or that you'll remember certain facts about this man's encounter with Jesus, but that you too will have a life-changing encounter with Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. And so let's bow our heads and let's let's pray towards that end this morning. Heavenly Father, we do uh, just thank you uh, for an opportunity to, to come before you to Uh, open your word. And Father, we pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see Jesus this morning. Father, the best um, that I can do is to bring loaves and fish, um, but only you can can break that and bless it and uh, feed your people. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that. You would open our eyes, that you would show us Jesus, and that you would give us life in his name. Amen. 
So Luke chapter 17, and we'll begin reading at verse 11 this morning. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes this about our Lord Jesus. He says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it this morning. Now, have you ever noticed how much people love to talk about the things that they love? If you've never really paid much attention to this, just try and ask a a grandmother about her grandchildren and then just step back and watch the floodgates open. People really love to talk about the things that they're passionate about. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Especially in light of what Jesus told us in Matthew 12, 34, when he said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we see the truth of this played out in everyday life, every time we speak to, to new parents who are gushing about their, their newborn or about the lifelong surfer who uh, had that epic session at Swami's two years ago. And the same was true of Jesus. He too talked about the things that he was passionate about. And one of the things that Jesus was always talking about was the kingdom of God. As we saw in in Sunday school this, this morning, at the very outset of his ministry, Jesus announced that the kingdom of God had come. He said, this is the, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In fact, that was the very reason that Jesus was sent to earth was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And that was also why Jesus performed miracles. Jesus' miracles were signs that pointed to a reality. They were signs that pointed to the fact that the kingdom of God had come to earth. You know, one of the things that Jesus did frequently in his earthly ministry was that Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. And every time that Jesus restored sight to a blind person, it was a sign that pointed to a spiritual reality. This was the reality that Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to understand in John 3, verse 3, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus also came to cast out demons. God sent him to to crush the head of the serpent and to transfer God's people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so every time Jesus cast out a demon, it was a a sign that pointed to the reality that the kingdom of God had come, not in merely word, but in devastating power. Jesus said, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And Jesus also came to cleanse the unclean, like the lepers that we see in our text today. And it was a sign that pointed to another reality about the kingdom of God. You see, the thing about the kingdom of God is that it's, it's very exclusive, and not just anyone can enter. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You know, a lot of people in our day and age talk about the death of a loved one. And they seem to find some comfort in thinking or imagining that that person is in a better place, no matter what they believed or no matter what kind of life they lived. And to be sure, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a much better place. But heaven would actually cease to be heaven if unrighteous people could just waltz right through the pearly gates. Would heaven be heaven if people like you and I could simply walk right in just as we are? Or maybe let me put it this way. Would you even want to go to heaven if it was filled with people who are still full of lust and pride and envy and hate and selfishness, even if you were one of them? You see, the thing about the kingdom of heaven is that it's a place where righteousness dwells and only the righteous will enter or heaven would cease to be heaven. And the Bible is crystal clear about this. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, the apostle Paul says this, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he essentially says the same thing in Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, for you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, there could be no worse fate than to be shut out of the kingdom of God. And in the text that we're looking at this morning, what we see here is a living illustration of what it's like to be on the outside looking in and how any hope of ever entering that kingdom can only be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in this gracious sign that Jesus performs when he heals these ten lepers. So let's be good to look at this gracious sign that we see here. So Luke begins this account by telling us that Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. And somewhere along the line between Samaria and Galilee, he hears this, this chorus of desperate cries out in the distance. And when Jesus looks up to see where the cries are coming from, his, his eyes land on a really heartbreaking sight. It's a small colony of desperate and maybe even disfigured men. Ten lepers who were crying out to him with a loud voice and begging him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In Jesus' day and age, leprosy was described as a, as a really as a living death. And there were, there were devastating physical, social, and even spiritual ramifications that a leper had to essentially live and die with. First of all, leprosy was a, like a tortuous skin disease, and it itched and burned with erupting sores, raw flesh, and could literally cover a person from head to toe. And from what I understand, in the advanced stages of this disease, uh, these lepers could be terribly dis- debilitated and even disfigured. Some have even described them as, as looking as dead men walking. But the physical symptoms of leprosy might not even have been the worst part. When a leper was pronounced unclean, not only did he receive a death sentence, but he also received an eviction notice. He was exiled out of the camp and sentenced to a life of solitary confinement. Lepers were outcasts, separated from the presence of God in the tabernacle and separated from the fellowship of God's people. Essentially, they were sentenced to a life of just watching life pass them by and living and dying alone. 
Lepers were also required by the law to wear torn clothes and to let the hair on their heads hang loose. In every way, they kind of looked like something we might see out of a horror movie. And when the, anyone walked by, the, lep, the leper was supposed to cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, in order to warn anybody who might come near to this, these people that were uh, infected with this contagious disease. But on this particular day, this group of ten lepers, they stop crying out unclean, and they start crying out for help. Because in the distance, they can make out the figure of a man who might actually be able to help them in their desperate situation. Now, we're not really sure how these people heard about this man, but certainly they had heard about this man named Jesus, who was opening the eyes of the blind and who was making the lame to leap for joy. And they had even heard that he had the power to cleanse a leper and to make the unclean clean. In fact, according to one report that was circulating, Jesus even did the unthinkable. He reached out and he touched a leper. And when Jesus did, the most amazing thing happened. Jesus himself did not become unclean by touching the leper, but rather he healed the leper and he made the unclean clean. And on this particular day, it's this same Jesus that happens to be walking by their leper colony on his way to Jerusalem. And so when they see that it is Jesus, they stop crying out unclean and they start crying out for help. And Luke says that when, <clears throat> Luke says that when they lifted up their voices, they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now think for a minute about what these men really need. Think about what they're really asking. They need somebody who is both willing and able to help them. First of all, they need someone who will pretend like he doesn't hear them, who won't look the other way, who won't turn a deaf ear to their cries. But they also need so much more than just a sympathetic look, don't they? They need somebody who actually cares about their pitiful plight, but they also need somebody who has the power to actually help them in their desperate situation. These lepers literally need someone with a heavenly compassion and a divine power. And that can only be found in one man, in the man, Jesus Christ. And he happens to be walking by them on this day. And when these lepers cry out to Jesus, Jesus actually hears their cries. He doesn't look the other way as we might be tempted to do as we're walking out of the grocery store, but he looks at these men and he actually sees them and he drinks in their misery. He sees them. He sees the image of God in them as Mars as it is through the, through the sores and the, the open wounds, and he takes to heart their miserable, suffering condition. But then Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He actually heals them. He makes the unclean clean. But he does this in a very unique way this time. Jesus simply tells the lepers to go and to present themselves to the priests. And that's because the priest was the one who was assigned the sacred duty of declaring somebody either clean or unclean. In fact, he was the person who had originally uh, declared them that they were unclean. And think about this. Since their first diagnosis, their bodies had only further succumbed to this progressive death and decay that they were infected with. And yet Jesus simply tells them to go and show themselves to the priest. Now, obviously, what Jesus is doing here is that Jesus is testing their faith. He's asking them to walk by faith and not by sight. 
He was asking them to trust his word rather than what they could see with their own two eyes when they looked down at the sores on their bodies. And Luke tells us that they did. They took Jesus at his word, and as they went, they were cleansed, or their faith became sight. And can you imagine what these men must have seen that day? Now, we aren't really told if their, if their healing was progressive and it, and it just kind of dawned on them as they went that they were cleansed of their leprosy, or if it was immediate and they all just stopped dead in their tracks with their, their jaws dropped just staring at what had happened to one another. And it might be fun to, to speculate, but Luke tells us really all that we need to know when he says, as they went, they were cleansed. By the very power of his word, Jesus healed the scabbed and the scarred, the bleeding and ravaged flesh on their bodies. He heard their cries and he healed them in their brokenness. And that's one of the main things that Luke wants us to understand today. He wants us to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that our Lord Jesus is indeed mighty to save and that he has the power to make the unclean clean. Now, beginning in verse 15, if you look at that, the camera then kind of zooms in from the ten lepers to focus on the plight of one particular man. Luke says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. It's interesting that Luke goes out of his way to highlight the fact that this man was a Samaritan. And I think he does this in essence to make a, a really, he, he highlights this as, as a, like, a, a, like a punchline of a joke, except for it's not a joke. This man was a Samaritan. Now we all know that the Jews and the Samaritans, they, they didn't exactly get along. And that there was this long-standing debate between the Jews and the Samaritans about where the proper place was to worship. And we learn this from an interaction that Jesus had in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. You remember this story. It's the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Well, she happened to be a Samaritan woman. And do you remember how she said to Jesus? She said, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And do you remember how Jesus responded to her? Jesus answered her saying, he said, woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, the kingdom of God had come in our Lord Jesus Christ, and it was time for the people of God to worship at the true temple. And that's exactly what we see here when the Samaritan man in our text today falls at the feet of Jesus to worship him. And this is really interesting because if, if, you, if you think about it, this man doesn't actually really do what Jesus told him, told him to do, now did he? He didn't go to the tabernacle to see the priest, and yet Jesus commends him for what he does. And I think that's because somehow the Samaritan man saw the sign. He saw the reality of what this pointed to. He somehow saw that he didn't need to to go to a certain city or to a certain mountain to offer God true worship. No, he worshiped God at the true temple by falling at the feet of God's one and only Son and giving him thanks. And this is the grateful response that Jesus commends. And his commendation of this grateful man is simultaneously an indictment of the other nine. 
You know, Jesus asks him, he says, we're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and to praise God except for this foreigner? Now, we aren't exactly told what happened to the other nine, but I think it's reasonable to think that they just went back to their own lives. They probably did exactly what Jesus had told them to do. They went and showed themselves to the priests, were declared clean, and then returned to the old lives that they had left behind. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. How long it had been since they had kissed their wives or hugged their kids or visited their aging parents? When was the last time they slept in their beds, had a home-cooked meal, or went to the tabernacle? We don't really know, but we do know that in all of their excitement that they had failed to give God praise and to thank the one who who had actually healed them and in essence given them those lives back. You know, I'm sure that all of these other men could also go on and on about how grateful they were, especially on a weekend like this, on a holiday Thanksgiving weekend. I'm sure they could all list all of the things that they were thankful for, like health and community. But there's a huge difference between talking about how grateful you are and actually expressing that gratitude to the one who gave you all of those blessings in the first place. And most of the lepers that were healed that day ran back to those lives that they were allegedly so grateful for, except for this one man who returns and he falls at Jesus' feet and he just says, thank you. And Jesus looks down at him and he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And it's here in this interaction with this one man that we see that this miracle wasn't just about cleansing 10 men of their leprosy, but that it was much more so about one man being forgiven of his sins. You see, this miracle was a sign that pointed to a greater reality, the greater reality of a heart that is cleansed by faith. You see, the word that we have translated here in verse 10 is is, it's the same word that is often used in the New Testament to refer to our eternal salvation. Jesus' statement could just as easily read, your faith has saved you. Now, it would seem that the other men did have some degree of faith because they went with this man to go and show themselves to the priests. But it's clear that something special had happened in this man's heart. Just as Jesus had cleansed him from the ravages of this deadly disease, Jesus had also cleansed him from the depravity of his sin. And this heart that once overflowed with lust and greed and anger and pride had been cleansed by faith in Jesus and now overflowed with thanksgiving. And gratitude is the only reasonable response for a man who has been cleansed from the ravages of leprosy. And gratitude is the only reasonable response for a man whose heart has been cleansed by faith in Jesus. Because if you think about it, what else did this man really have to offer Jesus except for gratitude? And as we sit here over 2,000 years later, after our Lord Jesus healed this man, what we are seeing here, too, is a, is a picture, a picture of our own desperate need to have our hearts cleansed and how only our Lord Jesus has the power to make the unclean clean. And it's really a story of every believer. It's a story of guilt, grace, and gratitude. You see, because throughout the Bible, leprosy is often a gra- graphic representation of our sin and in how our sins have made us unclean. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. These are the things that have made you and I unclean. 
You know, there's a, a popular notion in our day and age that says, yeah, I've, I've made some mistakes, but, but deep down I have a good heart. And really I think that's what most people in our day and age believe. But here Jesus exposes that fallacy and he actually says that things are so much worse than they appear. He actually says that we're all rotten to the core and that our hearts are in desperate need of cleansing. And not only do our sins render us as unclean, but they also render us unfit for the kingdom of God. As we already saw in Galatians 5.21, the Apostle Paul said, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what we see here in this text is a picture of just how desperate our situation is in our sinful condition. We are lepers exiled from the camp and cut off from the presence of God and from the fellowship of his people. Now that kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Haven't we kind of heard that refrain before? Doesn't that kind of sound like the Garden of Eden all over again? It's the story of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, who defiled themselves by the eating of the forbidden fruit, were kicked out of the garden and separated from the life-giving presence of God. And that's where we all find ourselves, born into a sin-cursed world, infected with this deadly disease, and shut out of the kingdom of God. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he is still in the business of healing lepers and of cleansing sinners. You see, throughout the Bible, healing is a picture of salvation. We see this even in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 41.4, which says, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And if sin is the disease, the gospel is the cure. And we see how God has answered this cry in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his story that gives hope to ours. Now, did you notice in our text this morning how Luke went out of his way to say that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem? A little bit later in the book, Luke is going to describe how Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a majestic horse, but on a lowly donkey. And he did that to signify what kind of king Jesus really was and what he came to do for his people. You see, what the people didn't realize that day when they had assembled together to, in essence, coronate their king was that the donkey carried not only a king, but that it also carried a sacrifice, a sacrifice for their sins, a sacrifice sufficient to to cleanse um, all of God's people from all of their sins. You see, the only way for us to be made clean once again would be for the sins that we have committed, the sins that have made us unclean, to be imputed, to be transferred to someone else. And that's exactly what Paul says happened in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, a just God can't simply just look the other way and leave sin unpunished, or else he wouldn't be just. He would cease to be good if he did that. His justice demands payment, and the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And what Luke is telling us here is that Jesus was on his way to go and pay that debt. He was on his way to Jerusalem to go and offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world to cleanse his people from all unrighteousness. 
You know, the Apostle Peter says that it was on that cross outside of Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago where Jesus answered the cries of his people. Peter says that he himself bore his sin, or bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In other words, our Lord Jesus was crucified to make the unclean clean. And because Jesus himself bore our sins away and suffered outside the camp, he has made us fit for the kingdom of God. Like we saw in our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But he also goes on to say, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But one really big question remains, and the question is this. How can all that Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, how can all of that be mine? How can his story be mine? How can this story be more to me than just another in a long list of inspirational biographies? Or in other words, how can I, with all the, the, the long list of sins that I have that I have committed, that I have defiled myself with, how can I be made clean? Well, the answer is found when Jesus said to the man, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It was faith in our Lord Jesus that made the Samaritan man well. And I think this is the other reason that, that Luke goes out of his way to highlight the fact that this man was a Samaritan. You see, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is deconstructing this notion that your ethnicity or your family ties will get you into the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the story where Jesus heals the, the, the servant of the Roman centurion? A Roman centurion comes up, to one, comes up to Jesus one day and begs him to heal his servant. And when Jesus hears this, he asks the centurion, he says, should I come and heal him? But the centurion replied, you remember, he, he, it's kind of shocking. He said, Lord, I do not deserve you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Matthew says that when Jesus heard this, that he was amazed and he looked around at everyone who followed him and he said, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And then he goes on to say, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what Jesus is telling us here is that it's not your ethnicity, it's not your family ties, or that good heart somewhere deep down inside there that will get you into the kingdom of heaven. No, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to have your heart cleansed by faith in Jesus. And you know, there may be some of you sitting here today with hearts still full of greed and envy and lust and selfishness. Well, if that's you here today, I have good news for you. Because Jesus is still in the business of making the unclean clean. The Bible says that the day of salvation that the, is, is today, that the gates of the, of the kingdom of heaven are still flung wide open to you and that your invitation is still good. And your invitation says this, 
It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or as Charles Spurgeon once so eloquently said, he said, there is nothing standing between you and the pardon of your sins but your unbelief. And if you will but shake that off, you will march triumphantly through the gates of glory. But the message of the gospel isn't simply for the unbelievers here today. Because I know that there are some of my brothers and sisters in the room who also need to, remi- need to be reminded that Jesus died for the sins of Christians too. You might be sitting here feeling like you need to be washed all over again today. And if that's you, you're in good company. Do you remember when Peter felt that way? Remember when Jesus knelt down in front of Peter to wash his feet? And Jesus had said, he said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You remember how Peter said, okay, well, not my feet only, but then also my hands and my head. But you remember how Jesus responded to him. He simply reminded him of the gospel. He said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he said, you are clean. And our Lord Jesus wants to remind you of the same thing this morning. He wants you to remember the gospel. He wants to remind you of his atoning work on the cross and to hear his pronouncement, you are clean, your faith has made you well. You know, in fact, one of the reasons that the whole book of 1 John was written was to remind us that we have an advocate who has atoned for our sins, even as believers. John said, he said, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And our great advocate has already made us clean, but he's also here with us now to wash our feet through the power of the gospel. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And for those of you who have believed that healing word and heard Jesus say, go your way, your faith has made you well, let me ask you this. It seems appropriate on a weekend where we celebrate Thanksgiving. Do we have anything less than the man in this text to be thankful for? You know, brothers and sisters, I would venture to guess that there are some of us in this room who aren't as grateful probably as we should be. There are some of us whose biographies haven't exactly turned out the way that we had hoped. Life hasn't exactly followed the script that we had written. And it might be a real challenge to be grateful for the life that we never wanted. But when we remember that we have a Savior who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, we have so much to be grateful for. When we remember that our Lord Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, gratitude is our only reasonable response. And when we remember that it is by his stripes that we have been healed, how can we do anything but fall at his feet full of gratitude? And so on a weekend, when the world around us tends to offer these vague sentiments about being thankful for football and family and food into the, into the thin air and to no one in particular, how much more should we offer thanks to the one who loved us and literally gave himself for us? And when you think about it, What else do we have to offer either to a God who needs nothing and who has given us everything that really matters? Psalm 86, verses 12 and 13 says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. 
And that's why we've gathered here together this morning, is it not? To give thanks and to praise our great God and King who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says this. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's pray and let's give thanks to God now. Heavenly Father, uh, we do indeed have so much to be grateful for. Father, we uh, thank you uh, just for your um, just unbelievable grace, Father, that uh, you have showered upon us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that while we are yet sinners, that Christ died for us. We thank you that you have made uh, the unclean clean. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus is still doing that today. Father, we pray that you would just take this word, that you would plant it deep in our hearts, that you would help us to, to understand and to, to believe, Father, the promises of the gospel, that if we have confessed our sins, that you have cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness and help us to live uh, thankful lives and to uh, fall at the feet of our Lord Jesus in gratitude. And it's in his name that we pray these things, and it's in his name that we thank you this morning. Amen.